Well, uh, we have been going through Luke's gospel. We are in Luke chapter 11. Jesus has been accused of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, by the power of Satan. So he's, uh, he's been accused of being satanic, and, and we, we saw his response to that. He has also uh, been challenged to do a miracle, to prove that he really is the Messiah. And last week we saw his response to that. He says, no, no, no miracle for you, except the, the, the sign of Jonah. We'll talk about that in just a second. And then after, after that incident, he says something that, that's rather cryptic, actually. Um, so you got to put your, you got your thinking caps on this morning? Because this one, this one kind of takes some thinking. He, he talks about light. He says, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on the stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, but when it's bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. So, again, he says, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand. Now, if you take these verses out of context, it seems like Jesus is giving us interior decorating advice. You buy a new lamp, don't put it in the basement or under a a basket. Put it on a table where everybody can see it. You go, what does that have to do with the chapter? Well, we know from the whole of Scripture that Jesus is the light. He said, I am the light of the world. And more specifically, in the context of chapter 11, he is claiming that his upcoming death and resurrection is the light. And how people perceive his death and resurrection depends on the health of their, not their physical eyes, but their spiritual eyes. So, remember, Luke 11, they had accused him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And then it says, others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Jesus, do a miracle. And he says, no. I'm not going to do a miracle for you. This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it, except for the sign of Jonah. And and we say, well, what's the sign of Jonah? Well, in Matthew's gospel, he makes it very clear. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights... In the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Just as Jonah 
was as good as dead for three days, but then he came out. Jesus is going to be dead for three days, but resurrect from the dead. Now, um, that is the light that Jesus is talking about. Even though he's surrounded by unbelievers, everybody will have to deal with the light of one sign, of one miracle, and that is his death and resurrection. Okay? Now, with that in mind, that helps us understand his, his teaching on light here uh, a little bit better. Now, um, sometimes I give you three points and they all begin with the same letter. My thesaurus is as well-worn as my Bible. Okay? Today, I go above and beyond. It's not three points that begin with the same letter. It's three points that rhyme. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I actually, in my, my class on interpreting the Bible, my points all rhyme. Like, is there something on this page that makes this text for every age? All right. Well, yeah. And then, uh, let's not give the weight to description that we should give to clear prescription. And you go, what is all that? Don't worry about it. It's just rhyming. In fact, there's a, there's a site out there uh, called Fiverr, where if you're uh, writing a book, um, you can have them do editing and have them do uh, uh, just all kinds of different work. And there's a lady on there who says, Hire me, and I'll write you a rhyme. I didn't know you could get paid for that. Could be a, new, uh, a whole new avenue. But, um, so here, let, let me read the verse again. He says, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Now, in the context, the light is his death and resurrection. So here's my little rhyme. Jesus is the light, his truth is burning bright. And then I, I, I put that in your bulletin, but I think I got a better one here. Jesus rising on the third day is a burning light that won't go away. All right? Now, many have tried to dismiss, dismiss, dismiss <laughs> Christ's death and resurrection. Now, a lot of people set out to say, all right, I'm going to disprove the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the more they looked into it, the more they became convinced that Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you under this first point six pieces of evidence that you have to deal with. The, the light is shining, and everybody has to deal with the evidence surrounding his death and resurrection. So let me give you six pieces of evidence to deal with. The first piece of evidence is this. His death and resurrection didn't just take place in a historical vacuum. All right? it, it wasn't like uh, some disconnected magic trick that somebody did in history. No, no, no. His death and resurrection is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. You know, and, and, and we could look at specific things like uh, his entire life 
uh, he, it's predicted in the Old Testament where he'd be born. He'd be born in Bethlehem. Uh, he would come through a very specific genealogy from Abraham through David through the tribe of Judah. Right? Uh, he would be born of a virgin. But the entire, uh, the entire Old Testament points to his death and resurrection. It points to, through typologies, Israel being the Son of God and uh, there being prophets, priests, and kings who the Messiah would fulfill all those typologies. And the Messiah would also be a suffering servant, as we read about in Isaiah 53, who'd be pierced for our transgressions. Right? And then he would die and come alive again. So, um, the first thing you need to consider is the fact that his death and resurrection is not just some standalone miracle. It's the fulfillment of all of Old Testament prophecy. So that's the first piece of evidence you need to deal with. Second one is there was a missing body on an Easter morning in the year 33 A.D. He had been publicly crucified, put in a tomb, and people said, he's not there anymore and we've seen him alive. And the reality is, there was nobody in that tomb. Now, how do you explain that? Well, the, the, the main explanation is somebody took it. Somebody stole the body. No, well, who would the three, uh, the three possibilities be? The disciples, the Romans, or the Jewish leaders? Right? Now, did the disciples steal the body? Well, that night, they were all cowards when he was, when he was uh, arrested. They fled. They were trembling. Peter denied that he even knew him. Are we, are we really to think they got together and said, hey, let's steal the body and create a hoax called Christianity based on a lie? No, they were cowering. So it wasn't the, the disciples. What about the Jews and the Romans? Well, they had a vested interest in stopping this thing called Christianity. If they had stolen the body, all they had to do to stop the spread of Christianity was throw the dead body on the streets of Jerusalem and say, there's your risen Messiah. They didn't do that. Where'd the body go? The tomb was empty. Whatever theories you come up with don't really hold up. All right? Now, the third one, and this is one I'm going to spend some time on, is there were living witnesses still alive when the New Testament was written. They were, uh, they were still alive. So let me give you an analogy. Um, Watergate happened 50 years ago, about 50 years ago. What if somebody tried to say, oh, it never really happened. That just was a myth that was slipped into history. That's what people say about Christ's death and resurrection. It didn't really happen, but a myth started that it happened and it was slipped into history. Now, if we said that about uh, Watergate, here's the problem. There are people in this room who were alive 
when Watergate happened. In fact, can I tell you a little secret about Barb? Yeah, you know those missing tapes? No. Um, all right, so four people went to prison. Mitchell, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, and Charles Colson. We all know about Chuck Colson. But Barb, you were the secretary or an assistant to? Was it Haldeman or Ehrlichman? Haldeman, all right. Bob Haldeman. HR Haldeman. He was a good guy, yeah. He took his coffee with cream and two lumps, right? So if we said, come on, Watergate isn't real, and we have a person who <laughs> actually was in the middle of it, we couldn't get away with that myth, okay? Now, um, Christ's death and resurrection, the, the gospel stories about Christ's death and resurrection is presented as a very real historical event naming well-known names, well-known places, and it was circulated, they were circulated during the same generation in which there were still people alive who could verify or nullify those events, right? The, the Gospels name very real places. It took place in Jerusalem during the festival of Passover. Jesus, when he went to pray, went to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is still there today, overlooking the temple. He was arrested and brought before the high priest. What was his name? Caiaphas, whose, whose father-in-law's name was Annas. He was then, the next morning, uh, brought before Pilate. And then he was sent over. King Herod happened to be visiting for the big holiday, and he stood before the king, Herod. He was then flogged on a place called the Pavement. A man named Simon of Cyrene carried his cross for him. He was put in a tomb owned by a guy named Joseph. From where? From Arimathea. The tomb was guarded by Roman soldiers. A guy named Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea took his body down from the cross and put it in a tomb. If this story's a myth that was made up, all of those details would have been discredited. But the fact that nobody discredited those details in the very generation in which it happens argues for the fact that it's historical. Let me show you something I thought about this week. Um, or, by the way, here's Paul writing to the Corinthians 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus, and he says, uh, after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Look at this. Most of whom are still alive, like Barb. Still alive, still kicking, right? Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. He's basically saying, not only am I telling you this story, but if you don't believe me, there are living people. Here's their names, and there's 500. Most are still alive, though one or two have died. Okay. Then, the Apostle Paul, about 30 years after Christ's death and resurrection, is arrested, taken to Caesarea, and put in prison, 
And he's put on trial, not once, not twice, but three times. He stands before two governors, Felix and who's the other dude? Uh, Festus. Festus and Felix, right? They were the successors of Governor Pilate. They knew all about it. And then Paul stands before Herod. Right. In fact, where's my... And he, and he says this, for, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I'm persuaded that none of these things, talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus, has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Now when Paul says this hasn't been done in a corner, he is speaking a great understatement. Because he's standing before this guy right here, Herod Agrippa II. His great-grandfather, Herod the Great, is the Herod who tried to kill baby Jesus. Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas, is the one who chopped off John's head and the one whom Jesus stood before on the day of his execution. Herod Antipas' son, Herod Agrippa I, is the one who killed James, the apostle, and arrested Peter. And he was struck down and eaten by worms. Right? And now he's standing before this Herod. When, when Paul says, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think these things took place in a, in, in a corner. I, I think you might have heard about them. Yeah, from great-grandpa, from grandpa, and from dad, who all had dealings with Jesus. All right? So that whole point is this. The Gospels are not presented mythologically, but as real history, and presented to the very generation that was alive to have witnessed these events. Let me keep going. Number four. These witnesses who saw Jesus alive died for their belief in Christ's death and resurrection. All right? and, and this is amazing because the night he was arrested, they're such cowards, but then they see him alive. Of course, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and now they're willing to die, Peter, by crucifixion. How do you explain that? Because it's true. Right? Number five, how do you explain the start of the church. Now, Jewish people have always been, still are, very traditional. They're not quick to switch religions overnight. Okay? But one day, Peter stands up, preaches about Christ's death and resurrection, and 3,000 people believe in Jesus, get baptized that day, and form the church. And the church has existed and grown ever since that day. How do you explain this? And it happened in the very city where Jesus was crucified. The start of the church has no explanation other than they looked at the evidence and said, we believe it's true. Right? One last thing. Dramatic conversions, like the, the 3,000 on the day of Pentecost who believed. But what about this guy named Saul of Tarsus? 
He hates Christians. He kills Christians. He's on the road to Damascus to arrest Christians. And Jesus appears to him. And now he becomes Paul the Apostle, willing to suffer great pain for the spread of the God. How do you explain a dramatic conversion like that? It's real. All right? So, um, that's my little Easter sermon uh, about Christ's death and resurrection, but in the context of what we're talking about here, it's the light shining in the darkness throughout the ages. Okay? Now, let me give you another point. Jesus goes on and he says, your eye is the lamp and, and he has to mean the window, okay, of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. When your eyes are not blind or diseased, the light gets in, fills your body with light, okay? But when it's bad, your body's full of darkness. And then here's the key, here's the, here's the evaluation point this morning. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. Okay, so, so here's the little rhyme. The problem's not the light, the problem's with our sight. If, if we don't believe in Christ, problem's not with him, it's not with his truth. Problem's with our spiritual sight. And remember, he's, he's talking to people who had just accused him of doing Miracles by the power of Satan. So their eyes are looking at the light, and the light hits their, their uh, diseased eyes, and they reinterpret it and go, ah, he's from Satan. Right? So this is really a warning to examine our spiritual sight. Okay? So the, the problem's not the light, if, if we don't believe in the light. The problem's with our sight. You know, I, I uh, occasionally, when I'm looking at a text, I see what Spurgeon had to say, and he preached a whole sermon on this. And he warns people about, uh, if you, uh, about how if you have bad eyes, spiritual eyes, truth hits your, your eyes, and then when you process it, process it in your unspiritual brain, you twist it and it can turn into darkness. And he gives some examples. Here's one example. How you hear about grace. You're saved by what Jesus did for you, not by your own good works. So people hear that and they turn it into license. I'm saved not by what I do, but by Jesus. That's grace. Let's sin to advance the grace of God. And Paul hits on that in Romans 3. And he says, And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying. So he's saying, The truth is, you're saved by grace, not by works. What a glorious thing. Let's serve the Lord with all our heart. But some people hear about grace and they go, Let's sin away. It's a ticket to sin. And look at his response. He doesn't even give an answer to this objection. Here's his answer. Or their, here's his response. Their condemnation, King James says, their damnation is just. That is such a spiritually bankrupt idea that their damnation is just. How's that for a response? You know, people can do that with uh, 
the word submission in Ephesians 5. Uh, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, I believe that this is one of those things. Is there something on the page that makes this truth for every age? Yes, I think God has set up uh, headship. The husband is to be the head. The wife is to lovingly submit to his, his headship. But here's what some men do. Oh, here's my verse. Got this right here. Um, and then he becomes a tyrant. I heard of one pastor. He was counseling a couple, and he was a jerk. But he brought his Bible with, and he said, can I see your Bible? And he flipped through the Bible. Nothing was highlighted except one verse. Wives, submit to your own husbands. So he had his biblical justification for his tyrancy. And what, what I would say is, wait a minute. You don't take verse 22 out of the context of verse 25. And husbands, here's how you are to be the head. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He died for her. That's your model. Okay? Then, uh, so, so that's my own example. Spurgeon goes on, he gives one uh, where, where critical thinking, he talks about a person who uh, goes to, uh, to be a pastor and gets training and he's taught critical thinking, but then he warns us about critical thinking turning into unbelief. So here are the words of Spurgeon. He begins to criticize. Do not condemn him for that. He judges very properly at first. He criticizes things that ought to be criticized. But he stops not there. Once having his critical faculty aroused, he's like a boy with a new knife. He must cut something or other. Nothing comes in his way more often than the scriptures. And he must have a cut at them. He whittles at Genesis. He makes a gash in Deuteronomy. He halves Isaiah. <laughs> Some of you know what that means. He takes slices out of the Gospels and cuts the epistles into slivers. You see, he has so sharp a knife that he must use it. By and by, from a critic, he advances to an irreverent fault finder, and from that to an utter unbeliever, hard in the mouth and stiff in the neck. His light has blinded him. He has taken his own eye to, uh, to pieces that he might study its anatomy. Look at that picture. Cut your eye to pieces so you can look at it and study. And it doesn't work. And from now on, the light will be of no more use to him than that to the dead. So the call here is not, do you study your Bible? Blind people study their Bible. It's, do you get the light? And you go, well, how would a blind person, a spiritually blind person, know if they're blind or not? That's, that's a, that's a, that's a, a second-hour question that I want you to discuss. How do you, if you are blind, how can you possibly know whether the light in you is darkness or, or light? And here, let me just give you a hint of what I think uh, an answer is. Being in Christian community and being open to other people's evaluations and other people's teachings helps open your eyes to whether the darkness, the, whether the light in you is darkness or not. Okay? That's why we need Christian community. Hey, you guys, are you in a small group? Or are you off on your own? 
Okay. Do you come to second hour? You go, I, don't, I know that already. No, no, we're not talking about Bible knowledge here. We're talking about how God has set up the church so we, we need one another to perceive how we're doing. Okay. Now, one last thing. If then your whole body is full of light, so now the negative is you can be blind spiritually. Here's the positive. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. So here's, here's the little rhyme. If we have healthy sight, our entire life is filled with light. Okay? When your eyes are opened spiritually, you will love the light. Would you rather sit in a dark dungeon? Or open the curtains on a beautiful October day where the colors are. When, when your eyes are open, you know how you know you're saved? You love the light. You want to read it. You want to hear it preached. You want to be with people who study it together. Does that describe you? Okay. And you want more. You know, a, a reoccurring theme in the New Testament is that of spiritual blindness and spiritual sight. John chapter 9 is all about a man born blind. Jesus opens his physical eyes, and he's called before the spiritual authorities, the Bible experts, to renounce his belief in Jesus. Now, this guy's never read a Bible verse in his life. But his physical eyes are opened, and his spiritual eyes are opened, and he has far more insight than the experts. And they kick him out of the synagogue. Right? The picture there is his physical eyes correspond to his spiritual eyes. You know, there was a brilliant Pharisee named Saul of Tarsus. He studied under Gamaliel. He was brilliant, but spiritually blind. He was behind the killing of Stephen, the first martyr. And Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus. You know what he does? He blinds Saul. For three days he can't see anything. And then God sends a man named Ananias to heal him and baptize him. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit to give you physical sight and spiritual sight. See the, the analogy here? And I like this. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. And he regained his sight. Now, he hasn't eaten for three days, and he's been blind for three days. What's the first thing he does? Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. So to me, I'm going for the, the Subway sandwich first. Right? But, but, but his eyes are open. He goes, this is true. I've been in the darkness. Baptize me. And then I'll eat. So, folks, here's, here's the application. Would you pray 
Lord, you know, we sang that I, I surrender my heart. Will you say, I surrender my eyes? Physical and spiritual. Lord, open my eyes to your truth. Take away all darkness. Fill me with your light. And would you pray that, not only for yourself, but for those you know who are in spiritual darkness. Would you take a moment of silent prayer, and let's have the worship team come on up.